0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Pod 2112, the official podcast of the 2112 group, where we talk with industry executives and thought leaders about the trends and issues impacting the IT channel and the world around us. As always, I'm your host, Larry Walsh. Um, sales, to paraphrase George Michael, not everyone does it, but everyone should. You know, we've, we've said You know, the old cliche that everyone is in sales because we all have to sell our, our organizations and our products and our value proposition. It's difficult enough, though, in good economies and good times to do sales, but in extraordinarily challenging times like a recession or a crisis, it's even harder. And, uh, you know, lucky us, we get the double whammy of a crisis in the form of the COVID-19 pandemic and, of course, the resulting economic downturn. You know, vendors and solution providers are openly asking how can they maintain their pipelines and keep building their sales funnel when people are socially distanced? While many people are saying connecting with uh, existing clients is proving easier and better given that working from home and not traveling means people have more time, they're also saying they're having a hard time finding and connecting with new clients. And even though everyone has gone to the mattresses, to, you know, so to say, on trying to protect their businesses from the economic fallout, we're also hearing people talk about growth and that they still want to maintain a, a growth footing even among all this all this disruption and difficulties um, we know the pandemic is going to change a lot including the nature of sales and how we do sales just how you know you know just how this is going to happen, is a part of a journey of discovery that we're all going to go through. Uh, It's a question many people are asking, and that's why I'm thrilled and and appreciative to have our old friend, Tiffany Bova, the growth evangelist at Salesforce, the best-selling author of the book, The Growth IQ, and and literally a legend in our channel community. Join us today to talk about sales and growth in these challenging times. And with that, Tiffany, welcome to uh, Pod 2112.
1: Oh, well, thanks for having me, Larry. Such a kind introduction. I appreciate it.
0: Oh, uh, you know what? That's not kind. You know, okay, thank you. It might be kind, but it, it helps that it's also true, right? So, I mean, you you have a a storied history in our industry, and you really have morphed into uh, into a guru status when it comes to things like growth and sales.
1: Well, I, I, don't, I don't know about that. As long as people think that, I'm I'm in. <laughs> let's, go, let's go with that.
0: <laughs> okay, I'll tell you what. I'll I'll start then. Okay, I mean, I'll, I'll be the first one to say, Tiffany Bova. <laughs> Guru, <laughs>
1: thanks, Larry. I appreciate it. <laughs>
0: um, you know, so, what, what, you know, from your perspective, I mean, you you live in this topic of sales and growth on a daily basis. What has been the the biggest impact that you've seen thus far in this COVID crisis? I mean, we are now. You know, it's hard to say this because here in New York and in California, we've been socially distanced now for six weeks, and sometimes some places longer. But it, you know we are also being told that this is phase two of five and this is going to go on for six months to 18 months now what is it though thus so far that you've seen that surprised you or that's changed
1: you know i i always kind of looked at it in a couple of ways that i used to hear pretty consistently look we're having trouble hitting our sales quota and this is like sort of pre the situation we're in like this is not a new conversation because the statistics out of the CSO group are that 50% of selling organizations, 54% of selling organizations will miss quota. And that number has actually been flat or, de- or, or and going down even less we're hitting quota over the last five years. So it's been getting harder to sell even before we had uh, this black swan event, if you will. And I'll talk about that in a second. But um, it was already getting harder. And a lot of that was because... Uh, technology was changing. The demands and expectations con- from customers, both in the B2C and B2, uh, B2B side, was changing. And so businesses tended to lean on kind of three things. One, I'm going to hire more salespeople when times get tough in selling, because if I could add a head, I know I can get an ROI within 90, 120 days. It's worth it for me to spend the money and, and add headcount. The second thing would be I'm going to spend more marketing money because if I drive more in the funnel, I have more come out the other end. Or three, I'd cut costs. And you know, it had to be seven or eight years ago, I said to myself, there has to be a better way. And ironically, interestingly, a little tidbit story for you. Um, I think that I had one of my best discussions about those three levers, Larry, when you and I ran into each other at the IBM campus, like, had to be 7 years ago 6 years ago you were coming in and i was walking out right and i had just had this very conversation with an executive and he looked at me and he's like right so what can i do and i and i literally said to him at the time look you've got to figure out how to solve what i what i called the seller's dilemma which is transforming your selling organization at the same time that you're hitting numbers. And many sales leaders over time, you know, over the sort of 10, 12, 13 years, I've been talking about this, have put the transformation aside and they've not focused on it, on things like it isn't just deploying CRM. It could be the people and the process side, what their quotas are, you know, integrating customer service more and marketing. And so the situation we're in right now, uh, you know, there's been this wrecking ball that has sort of cracked open the underbelly of a lot of investments that quote unquote selling organizations have not made over time. And now that they're forced to sell from home more uh, than they would have been, teams are very distributed. Um, you know, everything now is either video or phone, very little face to face going on. It has accelerated the fact that change needed to happen, but amplified the fact that some of those investments were not being made.
0: I liked what you said there about, about. A, I, I'm going to use my own words, but what I heard you say was avoiding the, that transformation or even an evolution in sales processes or, or approaches. I find, though, is that that is more culturally driven than it is about the technologies is that they'll adopt the tools but they won't they won't actually change the way they're doing it is, is did it take an event like this like the covid pandemic and the resulting disruption to shock many of these staid organizations into rethinking the way that they do sales and the way that they approach customers
1: yeah. And so I mentioned very quickly Black Swan. And for those of you who have actually not re- read the book, it's a fantastic book. It, it, when you use a, the terminology Black Swan, it's capital B and S versus just saying the word Black Swan. Uh, and it has to be something that was unexpected. And so while we had the economic crisis in kind of seven, eight, nine, people would say that that was a Black Swan event. It's a little debatable because you know, it's kind of like the dot-com boom. It's like we were saying that it it's going to burst, that this is going to start to collapse. We just can't keep doing it. And so part of the black swan process is in retrospect, when you look back, you go, well, of course this was going to happen. You could say even what we're doing right now with COVID. Oh, you know, President Obama said it in the US. And before that President Bush said it, you know, people have warned, you know, the Who has warned and the CDC has warned. And so you could say, well, we've been warned. Why is it a black swan? Well This is very unique. In the last financial crisis, was sort of you know banking and housing got uh, very impacted. In this current environment, everything is impacted, and that's kind of never happened before, especially at a global scale like this. You know, the Spanish flu in the early 1900s, and or even the Great Depression, um, was localized because we weren't as global of a world as we are now in this in using uh, sort of technology. And and so I'd say this that. Uh, yes, I think that it's it's a catalyst for them to review the things that they had. But I would go back to one of the points you made on the fact that it doesn't get lost on me. I still show up to customers, uh, you know, pl- places when I go uh, travel around the world to visit with them. and And I often hear this. We have Salesforce or we have a tool and no one's logging in. And so a lot of this now, it may actually help in the fact that they see the value, the seller sees the value in actually using these tools in this way and not falling back on the crutch of, I can just go visit them or I know what has always worked in the past will work for me again. And in this current environment, you can't always lean on what you could in the past. So, you know, I think now it's it's making, you know, everyone has to kind of get comfortable with being uncomfortable and uncomfortable using video, uncomfortable using CRM or uncomfortable social selling or uncomfortable not following up. You know, from a from a pipeline or sales process perspective, in the manner in the ways that you have historically. So, I think it's a huge opportunity for for those that you know sell for a living. And as you mentioned, you know, as Dan Pink says, to sell as human. Um, ultimately, you know, it's this matter of I'm going to have to change the way I sell. In the short term, but what can I learn from this time to then apply to everything I do going forward?
0: I think, though, Tiffany, is that this is this is more than just a, a tools and process issue. Though, it, you know, we've been talking about, and you and I have had this conversation in the past uh, about the. Ch- in fact, I'm sorry, you even mentioned it uh, that the customers' expectations are changing. I, I preach on a daily basis that. Acquiring product is not a problem. It's not a challenge for anybody to get product. Getting the most out of that product is the challenge. And this is where we need to focus more on customer experience. But I still see companies, and I wonder if you do too, that they still fall back on process or fall back on their messaging. How How should we now be thinking, in, particularly under these, these trying circumstances, and what lessons should we be learning about changing value propositions and steering into that customer experience.
1: Absolutely agree. This is a people process issue. Uh, And so, you know, while we, unfortunately, there is, you know, things going on that we wish were not, we have to also face the reality that we have a pause that we could take advantage of to help rethink the processes we have in place to align better to this new modern buyer. Right, that the customer is far more disruptive than technology could ever be in selling because those expectations have changed, the tools they use change, the channels they use change. And when I say channels, I mean online and offline channels. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and ultimately, uh, this is where you say, okay, do I really need eight steps in my sales process? Really, do I need eight? But some companies are like 15. You know, Do I need them? Are there things I could be doing to enable um, behavior changes by changing the metrics? So, right now, with sales getting tougher, it's like, you know, some sales reps may not be closing a business. And so, what do you want them doing? Is it all about, look, we want to show our customers. Uh, you know that we're here for them, and make sure that what they have from us they're using, they're successful doing what they need to be doing. That we're there to support them in any way, and so that's really a customer experience, customer success, customer enablement play. And so that means that it's much more EQ, you know, and making sure you're communicating properly and doing all those things. And that's a little out of the comfort zone for sellers who are just like, look, I'm trying to retire quota day in and day out. Like, what did I sell? What did I close? What's my commission? What's my quota? Like, what did I sell? Day in and day out, right? That hamster wheel of spinning around instead of getting off of that and saying, hold on, right now, you have to let your customers set the pace of how they want you to engage with them. Number one, if they're even willing to talk about buying today, number two. Number three, if they are interested in talking about buying, how and what is the best way to make that happen in a seamless and frictionless way if it used to have to happen in person. And so I think that this is an opportunity, uh, and and I agree, this is not a tool issue. This is not a technology issue. This is not a people issue. This is not a process issue. This is all of them. And so you can't change the process side if you don't have technology, and you can't get the technology to add enough value if you're not changing the people process side. So I, I say this as an and, not an or.
0: It makes me wonder, because this is one of the questions that I have, we were seeing a, a a steady adoption a growth in automated sales otherwise known as marketplaces and e-commerce platforms fascinating to me frost and sullivan had numbers that showed somewhere 91 like percent of millennials and for those keeping score at home millennial now is the average age of 38 39 um 91 of them would in a b2b context prefer buying through marketplaces and one-third only wanted to buy through marketplaces. Do you think that through this experience, that you would not only be you know not only consumers but business purchasers are going to get more comfortable avoiding salespeople and or going around them maybe, maybe to just buy direct through marketplaces.
1: This is also an opportunity for sell salespeople to reset their approach to being a seller. And really trying to balance that EQ side of it. And so if you're not adding any value and you are a step in the buying process that adds no value beyond, well, I have to call Tiffany, you know, like, so I'm a client, I have to call Larry to order what I need. And the only value he adds in that is the fact that I have to order through him because I don't have another option. Now, all of a sudden there's another option and it, I don't have to call Larry. I can go to this marketplace and get it. And so it's easy. It's seamless. Remember, going back to what you and I agree on, you know, uh, vehemently is the fact that it's about uh, this new experience. Right. And that the expectation of customers is forever changed and has been for a long time. So now you say, okay, Larry, well, hold on a second. Like, I don't want Tiffany to just go to the marketplace Well, you can't just try to inject yourself unless you are adding enough value to that interaction that then I go, well, even though the marketplace is easier for me to order, if I don't call Larry, I don't get these other things. And those other things are equally, if not more valuable to me than the product I'm buying. And so this goes back to, can you start to recraft what you're doing uh, into what we call it Salesforce? We call it insight selling. Um, In really thinking about what insights are you adding, what value are you adding, like what are you bringing to the table to help the customer understand what others like them are doing or how people are using whatever it is you're selling or, you know, to stay on top of maybe other things they may need from you, that value you add will always far surpass marketplace. So I'm just going to use Amazon as an example. Amazon is totally online. You could say they're a master at it, right? Like I make the marketplace as easy as buying a book. I don't care what you're going to buy. And oh, by the way, I'm going to recommend what others buy who bought what you're buying so that you have everything that you need, right? That whole recommendation engine and everything that they did. What they did not have was the last mile. They did not have the ability in a you know storefront to have face-to-face relationships. And so when they wanted to go attack their competitor, a la Walmart for grocery in this in this case they bought whole foods because walmart had that you know four walls and the one-to-one interaction and so the combination of marketplace and a retail storefront was super powerful and now you know they're opening bookstores and they're doing other things to get to that multi-channel engagement because otherwise amazon was single dimensional right they were one dimension online that's it not that that's bad i'm just saying that's it that means that cuts out everybody else who actually wants to either potentially showroom, right, go to the on, you know, offline and then buy online. Also, I buy online and pick up offline. Like that sort of freedom going back to enabling customers to buy in what channel and in what medium and in what pace that they want to. That's that hybrid of the two things and you see it happening with a Warby Parker that disrupted and now they're in Target. Or you could have Dollar Shave Club, they're in Target. Warby Parker's opening their own stores. And so that's where you see that. That's why I don't think retail is dead. I think boring retail is dead. But I think that sort of experiential retail tied to a really strong online uh, marketplace, to use your term, uh, is is absolutely a game changer for um, companies that want to make those kinds of investments.
0: There's a number of, of companies that are out there offering very generous credit terms or financing options. Um, you've seen it with Dell, they've, they announced a a $9 billion program. Uh, Cisco had, you know, a two and a half billion dollar program, HP, a $2 billion program. Uh, Microsoft has offered freeware, uh. Is, is there a, a danger of in these types of programs, though, is that customers are out there, they don't know what they have, they're dealing with a lot of uncertainty. Signing up for debt may not sound appealing, but I can also see that you know, some salespeople who don't take the consultative approach that we're talking about, leaning too heavily on that option and running the risk of turning people off.
1: Yeah. And, and well, right now, I mean, I think that this is This is something that, uh, you know, if you are, it's a a lesson in understanding, regardless of what's happening at the moment, you know, right now. Uh, One of the things I started with my book, Growth IQ, was the context of the market before you make decisions about how you're going to go to market or sell or whatever. And this is a perfect example. Like the context of the market right now is everyone's working from home, educating from home, you know, doing everything they can from home for the most part. Then you have... You know, uh, the highest unemployment we've had in the U.S. and ever, I think. And so, you know, it's getting really challenging from a uh, finance perspective. Not only that, you know, I was reading this morning that you know the other problem is for a lot of small businesses they have outstanding accounts receivable that aren't being received from their you know from their from their clients because their clients aren't. In the office able to pay bills and so it's not that they wouldn't pay it it's that they can't get there they can't pay it and so small businesses that are already really bootstrapped on getting access to financing and funds and already have to wait 90 or 120 days for a net 30 term which is a problem for startups and small businesses is financing is the is the achilles heel in a lot of things that uh, need to happen right now and so that Lends itself perfectly to that statement of context, and so that's sort of the number one thing. And so, as you said, lots of brands are saying, "Let even car companies like we're going to waive payment for ninety days," or insurance companies, "We're going to cut your insurance by fifty percent for these next sixty days because we know no one's driving, and we're going to do all these things because it's about right now the financial pain that we are um, having as a country, and so and, and as a globe, but specifically in the U.S. And uh, I think that that. That is now when that context pivots, then you have to re you have to rethink is that the right messaging and the right play to go to market quote unquote to drive demand and sell when people start getting back to work is finance the thing that's going to hang on I'm guessing it probably will uh, for some time but then something else will come into play that they need to think about.
0: It's interesting you reference the car companies. I was just having this conversation uh, about you have some some manufacturers saying that, oh, buy your car online and we'll deliver it to your house, knowing that you're not supposed to go outside. And the question came was that the statement that came after that was, wait, we could do that all along and you never told us. Uh, aren't we also running into you know, re, you know this entire thing, re-educating the customer about things that are actually possible and that's going to change the way that they expect us to interact with them six, six, 12 months from now?
1: The way you behave right now as a brand is going to have far-reaching implications to what your customers today and your future customers are going to think of you tomorrow. So brands that are making missteps, um, with some of the financing and some of the help that's coming in from the government, you know, that's, it damages brands on, on why customers choose to do business with you and, and how your employees behave during this time. If they're trying to still hard sell, it's not being very empathetic to maybe who's on the other end. You know, I use this example often and I'm going to use it until I get another one, but for a good three or four days there, I got life insurance emails trying to sell me life insurance. Like, 3 weeks ago and I'm like, I'm not saying I don't need life insurance, but it's probably not a great message, especially with no reference at all to the current situation." So it looked like the campaign was set up before this happened. No one decided to go back in and go, "Wait, hold on a sec, hold on a second. Maybe it's not the right messaging to do, or we should at least, you know, put a banner around that saying, you know, we know it's really tough times. We want to make sure you're taking care of to have a little bit of empathy, but instead it was instead literally it was a hard sell. Like at your age, you need life insurance, so they probably bought a list from somebody, and and that now if I ever decide to get life insurance, like that's not a company I would go to because I felt like they were just tone deaf to the situation. So, you know, I'd say that 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 goes back to what we were just saying around, um, you know, acting like nothing's going on is not good. Acting like the you know the sky is falling and the world is ending is also not great that you have to find something in between as a brand um, that leads with your values, um, that leads with you know who you are from, uh, from an organization. And then everybody from a company standpoint understands how their role will change in the short term. Um, so potentially like waiving a fee for someone, it used to take five approvals. Well, right now we don't need approvals right? Somebody who asked to get out of a contract, instead of holding their feet to the fire and calling the attorneys, we let them get out of a contract. You know, whatever the case might be for your company, and those examples I gave were just examples, like I'm not saying it from from us specifically. So, you know, ultimately, it's what can your brand do? Uh, And I think that that's super important right now.
0: One last question, and is looking forward, I mean, this is the, the question I get every day is, what do I need to think of next? What are, you know, and I keep giving the same answer. We can't say yet. It. It's still way too early. We don't, we know things are going to change, but we just don't know really how yet. But what are some of the telltale signs that we should be looking for? If you're a CRO or you're a head of sales, a sales manager, what should I be thinking about now to think so I can prepare myself for what comes next?
1: I would have answered that question very differently when I first started at Gartner. I would have gone, oh, here's the three things I think you should do. And maybe about four or five years into my tenure there, I really realized what a disservice I was doing to customers by answering in that fashion. That I really realized that the answer is, tell me about your business. Tell me about your customers. Tell me about your employees. Like, Let me understand the context, where you're starting from, so that I can then give you better advice. And as an example, you know, Blue Ocean Strategy, you know, I love the book. Um, but when it first came out, many people were like, oh, we're going after Blue Ocean. Like, how should we sell a Blue Ocean idea? And I'm like, well, you know, I, I'm thrilled that you want to innovate. And those things are top of mind now. And it's a mandate from the CEO. But talk to me about, like, how do you, if you guys set up your scrum teams? Talk to me about your, uh, you know, Agile, your change management structure, uh, you know, what are your metrics around innovation? And they look, would look at me like, oh yeah, we don't have any of that. I'm like, okay, so how do you expect to go after a blue ocean if you don't reward people for failure only for success? <laughs> like, doesn't work, right? And if you don't have, you know, scrum teams and you're not doing fast agile sprints, like you don't even know how to iterate and fail and learn and iterate, you know, not to get too far down that rat hole. But the bottom line was they weren't even set up to innovate. And so, you know, the easiest way and the best advice I can give to answer that question is, this is a wonderful time to sit down and take an inventory of almost SWOT analysis of who you are as a company and where your strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and and threats are. And then I would reach out to your customers uh, and your suppliers and vendors and sort of the greater shareholder community of, of you. And I don't mean public shareholder. I don't mean in that say, I mean, shareholder, like in your ecosystem and ask them what they think, because it's not going to be what you think. And it's not going to necessarily be a hundred percent of what they think it's going to be somewhere in, in, in the middle of those two. Then you can start to build a plan of, okay, what's my short-term, medium-term, long-term projects I can put together that will help me come out the other side of this stronger, healthier, you know, a clearer vision. My people are all empowered the tools and systems have been um, modernized. We've updated people in process and org structure. You know, We've tried to do all this while people are already in this heightened sense of, of insecurity and anxiety. Like if we can do it while no one's in the office and we're already not in our regular uh, cadence and rhythm, this is a great time to do it. So my advice would be take that pause, take the time, do a SWOT analysis, ask your employees to do the same thing, on their own and on you as a business, ask some of your customers, like this is the time to, uh, you know, kind of give yourself a refresh, uh, to position yourself for success going forward.
0: Sage advice, Tiffany, you know, I couldn't agree more and it, it's been great having you on pod 2112. I'm, I'm glad we are able to make this happen.
1: Oh, well, thanks for having me. I appreciate you thinking of me. <sighs>
0: And everyone, that's all the time we have for this edition of Pod2112. I want to thank our guest again, Tiffany Bova, the growth evangelist at Salesforce, for joining us. And, and please also check out her book, Growth IQ. It actually, it's a great read. It's not the typical business book, and you'll you'll I learned a lot from it. I'm sure everybody else will. You know, when you read it, you will too. I want to thank all of you for joining us on Pod2112, a production of the 2112 Group. 2112 is the leading provider of research, strategy, development, and enablement services for B2B technology and manufacturing companies around the world for more information about how 2112 can help your business visit our website at the2112group.com and if you haven't done so please subscribe to pod 2112 you don't want to miss a single conversations with people like tiffany and other thought leaders around the world who's influencing everything around us you can subscribe to pod 2112 on apple Podcasts, google play spotify or wherever you get your podcast thanks again for listening to pod 2112 until next time i'm larry walsh